sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes off and brings, or then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. While he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's Word. Hi, I'm Brian Kirkman. I'm a pastor candidate here at Restoration Road Church. This is my first sermon here. Actually, this is my first sermon in about 20 years. Also, this is my first sermon in the Northern Hemisphere and in the Western Hemisphere. So, boy, do I feel out of place and out of practice here this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are here with us. We ask that you would humble our hearts and open our ears to receive your truth. God, I am just your instrument, and I pray that you would speak to these people from your word. God, we ask that you would lead us by your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to see the truth about your family and how we fit into that family, how you are calling us to be a part of that family. God, we thank you again. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So life can be confusing, chaotic, and messy. Sometimes we need to have something that we can just control, a place to have everything in order, a room where there's a place for everything, and everything is in its place. For you, this might be your bedroom or an office, a kitchen or garage, or maybe not. For some of us, we... um, we just, we're not as ambitious. We can't take control of an entire room. And so we have dominion over just a drawer or a shelf. As you walk into that room or peer into that drawer, you get a sense of peace. And if anything gets out of order, you can easily recognize it and fix it. And ah, the peace, it returns. So what if someone came into your room and rearranged a few things? Maybe furniture? Maybe some pictures, or some books, or some tools, whatever. What do you think about your room now? You had taken such great care in the original arrangement, but now someone has caused disorder 
to the room that you were so careful to arrange. So, ah, there's the volume. Hey. <laughs> Maybe I was speaking too loud already. Um, so then, what are you going to think about that person? What they have done to your room? How they destroyed the order, the peace, and the ambiance of your little refuge? How do you feel about what has just happened? Our text this morning is huge. And as I wrestled with it, God spoke words of correction to me. Words of conviction, of reordering, as I wrestled through it. And the text that we go through, there's a lot of verses that we're going to cover, but I want you to see it within the bigger context of God's entire story. God desires a family. He desires a people. If you look at the first book of Genesis, he teaches us that he created us to be his people. And throughout Scripture, we read that he is calling us, pursuing us, rescuing us, and calling us to be part of his family, to be bound up with him and with his people. And the story continues to unfold here in Matthew 12 and throughout our lives. The verses I want to start with today are actually Matthew 12, verse 46 through 50. So if you're not there, go ahead and turn with me now. So this is actually the end of the text that I'm going to be preaching. I wanted to start here because it teaches us, it answers a question. Who are the family of God? Who are those in Jesus' family? And then, as we come back to verses 38 through 45, God will answer another question. How do we enter that family? And how do we live within that family? So verse... 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sisters and mothers. These verses speak about God's family and their distinct mark. Jesus uses familial terms. Jesus is the Son of God. He does the will of his Father. And those who do the will of his Father are his brothers and sisters and mothers. In fact, the reason that Jesus is traveling to these small towns around his hometown of Nazareth is to call people into his family. And also to point out why so many are not in his family who think that they are. So Jesus, in verse 50, he holds out this glimmer of hope. He says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But we also learned earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus taught that you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we know that none of us are perfect. But he has gone to great lengths to show us not only what his will is, but that he requires perfect obedience to his will. The daunting truth is that none of us are anywhere near perfect, even though God requires perfect obedience to his will. Turn with me to Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. 
We have inherited a sin nature from Adam. This renders us unable to do God's will. Even if we do what is right outwardly, inwardly we are still filled with sin and selfishness in our motives. This, from this sinful nature, we develop a sinful belief system that entraps us in this, in this mindset and in this state. It is a belief system that the scribes and the Pharisees had developed extensively. You see, their belief system validated their righteousness. So you might ask me, what's righteousness? I like this simple definition. Righteousness is rightness. The scribes and the Pharisees, they believed that they were right, that they were good. And their entire belief system was based on this presumption that they were righteous. The scary thing is, is that they looked a lot like good Christians. They believed that the problems that they faced in life, that they were all external, not within them. They were doing their part to restore Israel. And others needed to be more righteous, less sinful, and more zealous like them. They they also believed in a Messiah, a particular Messiah of their own imagination. A Messiah who would confirm their rightness and tell everyone else to be just like them. Their Messiah would come and solve all the external problems, but not deal with them. They were righteous after all, but not right enough. Because Jesus said in in Matthew 5.20, that unless your righteousness exceeds the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Because of their sin and their sinful nature and their self-righteous belief system, they could only see themselves as part of the solution. They couldn't see themselves as part of the problem. They thought they were part of God's family, when in fact, they weren't. See, either you have to be perfect or you're not good enough. If you believe that you are good enough or that you even have the chance of being good enough, then your belief system is deceiving you. You cannot save yourself. Believing that your salvation is based on God's grace coming to you is foundational to doing his will. Verse 50 teaches us and answers that question. Who are those in Jesus' family? Those who do the will of his Father are in Jesus' family. So please go with me back to verse 38 the beginning of our text. Now we're going to look at the question, or look to answer the questions, how do we enter Jesus' family, and how do we live in Jesus' family? Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They knew the scriptures, but they didn't recognize that they were the enemies of God. As they talked with Jesus, they did so with a completely skewed view of themselves and him. And when Jesus revealed to them in verse 34 of the same chapter that they were evil, they couldn't accept it. In fact, they wanted to kill him. And thus they pretty much proved Jesus' point. They were evil. They had already killed the concept of the biblical Messiah. And now they were looking for evidence to condemn Jesus and to kill the real Messiah. See also verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. 
Jesus knew that there was murder in their hearts. And he responds in verse 39. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's a lot here. So before we dig in too much, I wanted to do a little bit of review on who Jonah was. He was an Old Testament prophet that God had sent to the pagan city of Nineveh. Jonah despised the Ninevites. He despised them so much that he actually wanted God to destroy them. So he ran away. He got on a ship, sailed away. God sent a storm onto the sea. Jonah was thrown overboard. God sends a fish that swallowed Jonah. And then it brings him to dry land and vomits him out onto dry land. When Jonah was in the fish for three days, he was as good as dead. Jesus uses this as an analogy of his death and his resurrection. Now coming back to Jesus' response here, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees. And he's direct and intense. He pretty much says this, You say you want a sign, but really, you want to kill me. I'll give you a sign. You will kill me. And in three days, I will rise from the dead. The scribes and Pharisees had already seen signs confirming that Jesus was the Messiah. But they wanted to destroy him. They had concluded that he was not the Messiah and that he needed to be eliminated and destroyed. Even as Jesus was dying on the cross, atoning for our sin, paying our debt, and bearing the punishment that was theirs and ours, they still saw an imposter. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 27, 39, you'll read some of the most blind and venomous words in all of Scripture. Matthew 27, 39. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Really? If he saves himself, then you will believe in him? If he puts his interests before the will of the Father, and before our eternal benefit, then you will believe in him? If, you, if he does your will, then will you believe in him? These words come from hearts that were hardened from sin and pride. The greatest sign of God's love is demonstrated before their very eyes, and their response is defiance and mockery. No, 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 God. All those other signs, those aren't the ones that I want to see. I want to see you come down from the cross, and then I'll believe in you. It sounds preposterous that someone could be looking up at Christ, dying for the sins of the world, and then demand that he do more, to do the opposite, to come down and make it stop. 
But maybe we do this when we unwittingly demand signs from him. Let God provide what I need, and then I will believe. Or heal my childhood wounds. Or heal my marriage, fix my family, or get rid of my mom's cancer. And then when he doesn't, we wrongly conclude that he can't, or that he doesn't love us enough to do what we want. He couldn't save my parents' marriage. He wouldn't fix my marriage. He couldn't save my baby. He couldn't save my church or, or protect me and stop the abuse. And he couldn't cure my depression. Have you demanded signs? Have you demanded that God save things that are not meant to be saved? As we know, Jesus did not come down from the cross. He didn't save himself. The night he was crucified, he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he drank the cup. He proved himself. Please do not ignore all the evidence of his power and love and spitefully turn your back on him. Now take notice in verse 39. Jesus responds to the scribes and the Pharisees. But his response is not just to the scribes and Pharisees. Because if we look over at verse 46, it says that he was still speaking to the people. The scribes and Pharisees, they wanted to trap Jesus. And he uses it as an opportunity to proclaim his death and resurrection to all the people present. And not just to all the people present, to the entire generation in Israel. And he is speaking to us here and now. His words are just as relevant and as powerful. If you are seeking a sign like this evil and adulterous generation, you're going to miss it. You will miss him. You will eliminate the real Jesus. Because he is not the God that you expect or the God that you want. Now, I think Jesus hit a particular chord with the scribes and the Pharisees by using Jonah in his response. Jonah, he was prideful. He was nationalistic, self-righteous. He didn't have much compassion for others. He was a good example for Jesus to use with them. They could relate to Jonah. And then God sent Jonah with his message to the Ninevites. And through his message, the Ninevites were saved. God was gracious in sending Jonah to the Ninevites. He cared about them. He was calling them. And he wanted to see them turn from their wicked ways. God also cared about Jonah. He wanted Jonah to know his love for people beyond the borders of Israel. And you see in this story that he loves you and that he loves, he wants you to see his love for people beyond the walls of this building. And he wants you to know that he wants the tax collectors and the sinners. He wants the scribes and the Pharisees. He wants them to be his brothers and sisters and mothers. He wants them to be his family. 
And he wants you to be his family. Verse 41. The man of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The judgment, which group will you be with? Will you be with the family of God? Will you acknowledge that Jesus is greater than Jonah? That he is the righteous one who died for the sins of the world? And he proclaims to you in John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Before he died, he proclaimed his death and resurrection many times. This is what the sign of Jonah pointed to. This is a sign of signs. This is our hope. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He paid our debt. He cleanses us from our sin with his blood. He gives us his righteousness and his life. He fulfilled countless prophecies when he died on the cross. And he has risen from the dead. Jesus continues his story, bringing people into his family. When we, we repent, as the Ninevites did, we acknowledge our sinful ways and that we're guilty, deserving God's punishment. We look to his mercy and grace alone for our salvation, turning toward the righteousness that he provides. Without the sacrificial Messiah, there is no salvation. The people of Nineveh, they couldn't save themselves. The, the Israelites, they couldn't save themselves. You cannot save yourself. You must look to Jesus. And this is the answer to the question, how do we enter Jesus' family? Now as we move on to answer the next question, we look to verse 42. How do we live in Jesus' family? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the, word, the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, someone greater than Solomon is here. So not, not only will this generation in Israel be condemned for not repenting, but also for not learning from Jesus learning wisdom from him. The queen of Sheba, she traveled thousands of miles to Israel to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Jesus travels right to the people, giving them his words, the words of life, and they reject them and choose death instead. I lost my spot. When, he, when they choose death, they reject Christ, our Savior. And we see in the verse that, that the Queen of Sheba traveled on a journey. This is a journey here in the Scriptures. This journey is a journey in His truth. This journey is about taking His truth to your neighbors, to your family, telling them of the message of Christ and that it is good news that he has risen from the dead, and that he has an open invitation to join his family. 
Jesus says, I want you to be in my family. I want you to meet dad. If you love my dad and obey him, then you're in my family also. And just as Jesus wanted others to come into his family, those of us who are in his family want others to come in and meet dad. That's where it begins with meeting Christ. Jesus is calling you to view everything differently and to live differently. Turn with me to Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It takes a transformed, renewed mind to live a sacrificial life of worship to God. A life dedicated to learning from Jesus, to learning his wisdom, will result in greater and greater dependence upon his grace. Because the more that we study his word, and the more that we ask him to teach us about ourselves, the more we see our sin clearly. And we desire more and more for his righteousness to cover over us and to be reflected in us. We find that we cannot leave repentance behind us as merely the entrance into his family. Repentance is a critical, essential characteristic of the Christian church, of the Christian church family here upon earth. Every single day, we find great pain in our sin because it tarnishes his glory. And every day we find great joy in his forgiveness because it magnifies his grace. We commit ourselves to obedience to Christ out of thankfulness for what he has done for us. The thankful Christian life is constant learning, repenting, and obeying. And then learning, repenting, and obeying. And as we learn to obey better, we experience his power in, his, in our lives. And as it sanctifies and changes us, I don't think we get a sense of greater holiness. Because the more that we understand him and his ways, the more his truth shines upon us and our eyes are opened up to our desperate need of his grace, that we utterly depend upon him. Let's look and dig into the last few verses here. Verse 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. This is the third negative thing that Jesus has said about this generation. 
First, it was that they wouldn't repent. Second, that they wouldn't learn wisdom from him. And now he talks of a house that is within them. It's empty, clean, and swept. The previous and prior resident was an unclean spirit. You can only imagine what the state of that house was. A house that was chaotic and messy. In slavery to sin. Without hope. Without purpose. Can you imagine how to even start cleaning that kind of house? Think of an episode of Hoarders. You've got rooms filled with rotting garbage. You walk into the bathroom and it hasn't been cleaned in years. You involuntarily gag as you breathe in the thick odors. The kitchen has piles of dirty dishes and cockroaches scurrying over the remnants of food from weeks and months past. The only way that this house is cleaned and put in order in verse 44 is by first getting the unclean spirit out of the person. Jesus' ministry included spiritual house cleaning. The spirit that God gives us to dwell within us is his Holy Spirit. And only by having his Holy Spirit within us are we able to be securely guarded against any unclean spirits or spiritual bondage. So how do we live within God's family? These scriptures here teach us that we are to live with the Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us. The Holy Spirit living and dwelling within us, we read from scripture in Galatians 4.6, that it will cause us to cry out with joy that we are his brothers and sisters and mothers. And that God, the Father, is our Father. The Holy Spirit within us will, guard, will be guarding the truth of our adoption in his family. The Holy Spirit within us causes us to obey God. 1 Corinthians 3.16 And looking at John 14.25 and 26, we learn that the Holy Spirit is helping us, teaching us, and reminding us. Ephesians 5.18 teaches us that the Holy Spirit is protecting us from sin. In Romans 8.11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So who are those in Jesus' family? Those who cannot acknowledge their need for Jesus to save them from their sin are not in his family. Those who refuse to learn wisdom from Jesus are not in his family. And those who will not allow the Holy Spirit to dwell within them are not within his family. You've heard someone greater than Jonah and Solomon proclaim to you today. You've heard Jesus Christ proclaim to you today. And he died for your sins. And just as that fish could not hold Jonah in, but vomited him out onto dry land, Jesus rose from the grave, and he has given his Holy Spirit to us. We have to welcome into our lives to guide us, to guide us in how we are to walk, and also to rearrange the furniture as he sees fit. God will redeem, 
restore and resurrect what might look to you like a broken plan, a failed plan, disgrace, or maybe an impossible cross to bear. Keep looking to the cross for what he has done for you there. Because he will weave your story in, into his central plot, in a way that your mind cannot even fathom. So as you're looking to the cross and to what he's done for you there, you see what Christ has accomplished for you there. You feel the joy. You feel the acceptance in his family. He is calling you. He's pursuing you. And he wants to bind you together with his family. Bind you together with himself. God's story is continuing. Aren't you so glad and thankful to be a part of it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us into your family, that by your grace we have entrance through your Son, that you have paid the price for us, and we desire you. We desire your truth. We desire your your Holy Spirit and his leading in our lives. God, if we are holding back parts of our lives, rooms that are filled with garbage, Lord, we ask that you would clear that out that you would help us to go to you, confessing of the garbage, allowing you to help us to clean it out. Without your strength, without your help, it is impossible to do your will. And so, Lord, we ask that we'd walk in repentance, that we'd walk in new life, and that we'd glorify your name as your family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the time in our service where we take communion, and really this is what we would describe as the kind of the zenith of our service, the the primary reason why we're here. Uh, We preach the gospel through hopefully what we sing, declaring only what can be declared about our Lord Jesus, and we hear the gospel through the sermon, and then we, in a very tangible way, experience the gospel anew every Sunday. And that's why we take communion every Sunday. This table is for those who are in the family of God. For those who have confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead. This is a place for you to come and as you survey the week that you had or the month that you had or even the morning that you had, you consider that what we bring to the table is nothing but our sin. That's all we contribute. But God knows that. And yet knowing we're sinners, Christ died for us. And so we take this every Sunday to remind us of what it means to be family. In first the family of God, where he says, I know your sin, I know you're broken, I know you're rebellious, I know you're weak, just admit it. I love you. Come and receive forgiveness again and again and again. But it's also a reminder that you're not alone in this journey. That as we enjoy being part of the family of God, we enjoy it with brothers and sisters in Christ. We come and partake of the same cup. We partake of the same loaf. And we remind ourselves that we're in this together, that we are the family of God and we're a family of families. So as you come up, take a moment before you do to consider that You cannot be rejected in Christ. 
that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That the family of God and the adoption into that family is irrevocable. And so come and enjoy forgiveness. Come and enjoy grace. And if you don't know Jesus, this is not for you, but I pray that you will. That you will come to the place where you see that you cannot save yourself. No matter how good you think you are, you ain't going to make it. But Jesus has done it all for you. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He ate a last supper with His disciples and He took bread and He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And He took the cup and He said, this is the new covenant in My blood shed for you to cleanse every sin worth infinite weight. Do this in remembrance of Me. And we will do it every time we gather until Jesus returns or we return to Him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You for saving us. We thank You for doing everything that was necessary and required to bring us back into Your family. Thank You for forgiving us. Thank You for cleansing us. Thank You for not rejecting us, though even this very morning, perhaps, and I know this week, Lord, we sinned. I pray this morning that there will be many here who experience great comfort in Your Gospel. Great comfort knowing that we can rest in the work of Jesus Christ and that our salvation is not based on our work, good or bad, not even based on the quality of our faith, good or bad, but based on the purity and the strength and the perfect work of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. If you please stand. If you have kids downstairs, we'd love for you to go get them and to worship with us. And during the next four songs, please come and partake of communion for those who will.